You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. How many of you uh, watched any of the AD series while it was on TV? Well, you know, it it meant AD was Anno Domino in the year of our Lord, but I turned that around a little bit. And AD to me means amazing disciples. Because when I watched uh, all of those programs, uh, even though they weren't all quite biblical, they kind of strayed away a little dramatic license, I guess. But when I saw what, what they were doing, and it reminded me again of those disciples, uh, the 11 disciples and the others after Judas went on. Uh, they, they were amazing disciples. So AD to me means amazing disciples. Because these amazing disciples went out and literally in their lifetime, in about 30 years, turned the world upside down because of what they had seen and what they had heard. And uh, so today, I, I want to share a message with you that I've entitled, entitled, A Changing World Needs Amazing Disciples. A, a Changing World Needs Amazing Disciples. We all know our world is changing at as, as an amazing rapid rate, don't we? I mean, how many of you have, a, have an iPhone, right? Most of you have it. Now, if, if, you are, if you're one of the shining face group, you know, the Shekinah glory is all over you, I, I hope you're taking notes. That's what everybody says they're doing anyway uh, while I'm preaching. Uh, but, but we all have an iPhone, and uh, we think we can't get along without it. I mean, it used to be you had, had to get my billfold and a watch, and now I don't have a watch and, and uh, don't have much in the billfold either, but I have an iPhone. And, uh, and, and it's like, I can't get along without it. But, you know, nine years ago, nobody here had an iPhone. This thing that you can't get along without, and you're looking at when you're in restaurants, and you're looking at at your home, and you're looking at when you're in church, uh, and, and every, probably when you're driving, some of you, I hope not. Uh, but when you're doing all of that... Uh, it's, it's amazing that nine years ago, nobody had this thing, and now we can't get along without it. We, we feel like we, we've left something off when we do. You see, January the 9th, 2007, the first iPhone was introduced. And a lot of people just gathered at the Best Buy and other places to be able to get in line. They pitched tents outside the store, slept there overnight to be one of the first ones to get that. And that that's amazing. But the problem is it didn't last very long because February 2nd, 2008, just 13 months later, it was out of date. An iPhone 2 came out. So now everybody had to get rid of the 1 and get the 2, a little, a little extra something going along uh, like that. And then five months after that, the iPhone 3 was shipped out. So now the 1 and the 2 both just thrown in a drawer, traded in maybe, and uh, we, we, we couldn't. Couldn't use them, didn't want to be seen with them anymore because now they're out of date. We're not cool if you got an iPhone 1, whether it's an iPhone 3 that's being sold down at the Best Buy. And then uh, on June the 10th, or June 2010, almost 24 months later, the iPhone 4 landed. Now everybody's back out there with their tents and uh, ship, just uh, camping out again. And then September 2012, the iPhone 5 came. And everybody had to trade in their four for the five. Uh, that, and then September 2014, two years later, iPhone 6 landed for most of us, and that's what we've got. Some have a 6 plus, uh, but we, we've got that. 
Now, I want you to think about what Apple is telling you when it names their phones 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, 8, 9, 10, probably to follow. You need to understand what they're saying. They're, they're being honest with you. They are telling you that the instrument that you think you can't live without, you have to have, that is so cool, in just a short period of time, will be uncool. And you won't want it. You won't want to be seen with it because you've got to have the bigger, better, up-to-date, up whatever it is, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever uh, along the way. That's what they're, at least their Apple is being honest with you when they, when they label their phones by, by numbers because they're telling you, we're going to sell you this phone for a couple hundred dollars, but we want you to know right away, in just a short period of time, it won't satisfy you anymore. You won't be happy with it. You won't even want it. You'll be ashamed to be seen with it uh, in, a, in a few years. They're telling you that by labeling, by numbering all of their phones. They're telling you, this is a six, but there's a seven coming down the road. And it's going to be better, uh, and, and it's going to be cool, and, and it's going to be more than you ever thought you could have again. See what they're doing? And it's changed since in nine years. In nine years, none of us had it, and now we're all the way up to six and, and still going on. If our changing world continues at the same rapid rate of change, in, in about uh, 20 years, you'll be using an iPhone 25. Can you imagine what that thing will do? It'll tell you what you had for dinner about, about three months ago. Uh, it'll tell you where you should eat and what you should eat and when to stop eating. It'll tell you anything and everything that you possibly could imagine when we get to the iPhone 25, and it'll be here before you even know it. See, if it, our, our world is changing, we'll have the iPhone 25 and the church 20 years from now will be suffering persecution like you and I have not even dreamed about. If our world keeps changing in the way that it's changing, and I'm going to tell you how it's changing in a little bit, uh, you won't recognize the world. The church is going to be vastly different. Uh, than what it is today, and we're going to see the kind of persecution that's only being seen in other parts of the world up to this point in time. The only hope I see for our changing world is that the church will once again know that it's an army of God. It's not a group of people who come and just sit and, and listen to someone talk for a while and sing a few songs and pray a little and then go back home and do whatever they want for another seven days. It, it, it's an army of God that is filled with amazing disciples who will fight the good fight of faith and, and Christians that will put on the whole armor of God and then march out to their jobs and, and to their companies and, and to the, the, the neighborhoods and, and literally become amazing disciples that turn the world upside down again. I think most Christians today believe that being like Jesus means just being a nice person. If you ask people, in one word, would you kind of characterize what you think about Jesus? They might say, well, he was nice. Right. But, but when you look at who Jesus was and what the Bible has to say about Jesus, uh, they didn't say he was nice. They said, he, said he, he was a great teacher and no one spoke like he did. But when you look at uh, and examine his life, you'll see that Jesus was a radical. He was a revolutionary. I mean, he was astonishing. People would sit and listen to him and say, no one ever talked like this guy. He, he was just an amazing guy. He was shocking. 
the, the Pharisees would stand up and say, how can you say that? That's not, you can't say that. No one's ever said that before. And they were shocked, the religious leaders, about what Jesus said and, and what he did when he drove the people, uh, the money changers out of the temple. Uh, he, was a, he was daring. He did things nobody else would even dream about doing. Uh, and he was, he was a militant rebel, revolutionary. I mean, if, if, if you stepped into the path of Jesus when he was on this earth, it, it, it was almost like stepping in front of a tornado. He shook up the world. It was dangerous to follow Jesus. It was risky to follow Jesus. It was challenging to follow Jesus, but it could also be life-changing. It could be life-transforming. Uh, it could be a life-giving experience to those who followed him, but there was a lot of danger in it also. You see, you and I today as Christians, we're called, if nothing else, we're called to be like Jesus. And other, actually, the word Christian means little Christ. And so if we're going to call ourselves Christians, it means that we need to, to be like him. Uh, and that doesn't mean just being a, a nice person. And that's what we've kind of reduced it down to. Uh, we're just supposed to be a nice person as a Christian, and that's not it. Uh, the Christian life Jesus modeled for us was a life of adventure. It was a, a life of passion. It was a life of challenges and, and daring and, and, da and, and dangerous and, and taking a risk. If we really preach like Jesus did back then, if we, we really worship like he did back then, we'd have to put a warning label in every worship folder when, on the sermon notes. It would have to say, warning, this sermon is dangerous. It could change your life. So today I want us to focus on two men that became amazing disciples. Two men who, who were joined in, in transforming the world as we know it today for Christ because they were able to make radical changes in their life. And that's what my challenge is to you today, that you would be willing and open as God would lead you to make some radical changes in your faith, in your living, in your relationships, in your home, in your marriage, and with your children, everything, every part of your life, that you would be open and you'd be willing to allow God to make some radical changes in your life. Because as we look at Peter and as we look at a man named Cornelius, you're going to see that both of these men had to make some radical changes in order to follow Jesus and be in his will. First of all, I want you to see Cornelius. He's a man who was willing to be changed. He was, he was just opened up, and he said, God, whatever you want me to be, whatever you want me to change, whatever I need to give up, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, to be changed. Look at it, Acts chapter 10 uh, in verse 1. We'll have it on the screen for you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. We might call it the Navy SEALs today. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He, he gave generously to the, those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and called out Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor. You see that? You're talking to God, and you're reaching out to help meet the needs of other people have come up as a memorial offering before God. God saw it as a worship experience. 
He said, so now, because of your prayers and what you've done, now send men to Joppa, the city of Joppa, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had gone, uh, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Cornelius is one of those good men. He's just a nice guy. It sounds like everybody kind of loved him. Everybody liked him. He's a good man. Uh, one of those kind of good men that we're hearing about in church. I mean, some of you guys, you're regular in church. You're serving the Lord. You're taking care of your family. Uh, a lot of people will think of you as a good man, too. A lot of you women, you, they think of you as a good woman. Uh, and so it's one of those kind, he's one of those kind of people. He's, he's someone everybody looks at, that's a good man. That's a good woman. That's a good kid. You know, that's the kind of person, and we have a lot of them uh, in, in church. He's a devoted family man. He loves his wife. He provides for his children. He believes in God. He prays to God. He gives to help the poor. He gives of himself out of his abundance that he has. Uh, and he's a fine, upstanding, solid citizen of Rome. He's a Roman soldier who is a centurion, which means he was over 100 other soldiers of the elite Italian regiment. A great, great guy. He, was, uh, he had all of those things. There was only one problem with this fine, upstanding family man. He was as lost as a town drunk in the Little Horse Saloon. He's lost. You can be a good man and be lost. You can be a good woman and be lost. You see, it, it's not about being good and, and, and all of that. To all the soldiers and, and the neighbors, he looks like the man who has everything uh, and he has his life all together. But, but he teaches us that you can have all the things that the world says that you need and still not be satisfied. Because this guy, with all the stuff that he has and all the relationships that he has and all the authority that he has, he still believes there's something missing in his life. And he's always praying and he's asking, God, God, I need an answer. What's missing in my life? What's going on? I need some help, God. I don't understand what's going on. And so he's a man that's under conviction. And conviction is the, the first stage of salvation. It's where you become dissatisfied with your life. You see, until you become dissatisfied with whatever it is that's going on in your life, you're never going to be saved. You have to become dissatisfied. If you think you, you've made it, if you think you've arrived, if you think you have all that you need in order to be happy, you won't ever be saved. But it's when you come under conviction that you understand there's something in your life that is not there, something that's missing in your life. You have all the stuff maybe, but you still don't have that peace that passes all understanding, that joy unspeakable. You don't have that relationship like you think you're supposed to have. Until you come to that point, then you, you may be a nice person, but you're going to be a nice person that's without Christ in your life. Conviction is a sign that you simply aren't satisfied with something in your life. But as long as you think your iPhone 6 is all you need to make you happy, as long as you think that that car in the garage and that house you have or the money you have, the other stuff you have can satisfy you, you're never going to be saved because you think you have everything you need to be happy, and that's what we all desire, right? We're all looking for happiness, all looking for joy in our life, and that stuff brings us a little happiness for, for a little while. 
But as long as you think that's what you need to be happy, then you'll never let go of it to become a disciple of Christ. And you'll just keep on buying the next new gadget that comes down the road that anybody sends out. And when the iPhone 7 comes out, you realize your phone isn't the best one out there. You're going to start feeling dissatisfied with the old one that you're happy with today. And you're going to have to have the next one just to be happy. But being under the conviction of the Holy Spirit means that you realize that the iPhone 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 or whatever it may be is not what you need to make you happy in life. It's okay to have one, but don't look to that to make you satisfied. You start realizing there has to be more to life than what you're experiencing, and there is. And you have to be able to understand it from God's Word. So while Cornelius is in that state of mind, and he's under conviction, and he's realized that with all that he has, he's not satisfied, he wants to know what's missing, then God begins to speak to him. And, and, And God answers a prayer, and he doesn't even know what to pray for. But God answers a prayer because when you have a a heart that is open to God, he's going to respond to you. And and God hears his heart and gives him what he needs. He said, here's my word. I want you to go and find a man in Joppa by the name of Simon Peter. And so he sends some men in that direction. See, everyone who knew Cornelius would say that he was a good man. But good men don't go to heaven and bad men don't go to hell. The people who go to heaven are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And those who go to hell are those who reject Jesus and refuse to change and give their heart and their life to him. So Cornelius was willing to take a risk and do what the angel told him to do. He sent men to invite uh, a man who he had never met before named Peter to his home. God opened the door for him. God said, this is what you need to do. This is the next step you need to take. And he did it. Because God knew that he was a man of faith that would be willing to follow him. He was willing to answer his prayer. So God opened that door for him. He, he knew there was more to life than what he, need, he, he was doing, but he didn't know what it was, and he needed help. He needed someone to come along and tell him. I don't know what you're looking for today. I don't know what it is that you think is missing in your life. I don't know what it is that's causing you to, to feel that, that uncomfortableness or, or, or that lack, that dissatisfaction in your life. But, but my faith teaches me that God has a word for you today from his word if you have the ears to hear it. That God's able to speak to your heart and God's able to give you the guidance and God's able to throw the door wide open to you today if you're willing to go through it and find out what it is that God has in store for you and what he desires. Cornelius simply proves once again that where there is an open and receptive heart, God's going to respond to it. So if you came here today seeking Jesus, he will find you. But Cornelius, but like Cornelius, you have to be willing to be changed. If you're not willing to be changed, then you're not willing to be a Christian. You're not willing to be found in the center of God's will. You have to be willing to be changed. The second man is Peter. He's a man who's reluctant to be changed. He's not willing to be changed at this point. He's, he's reluctant. He, he's fighting God all of his life. Peter had been taught what you had to do in order to be a good Jew. He, he knew it all along. He knew he, he wasn't allowed to work on the Sabbath. He knew he had to attend the synagogue. He knew he had to give an offering and a tithe uh, to the synagogue. He knew what foods he was allowed to eat, and he knew what foods he was not allowed to eat. You see, the Jewish kosher food rules, uh, they dictated what you ate, it, they dictated how you ate, when you ate, 
where, where you could eat, and even who you ate with. And the rules also taught that, uh, that Gentiles were not as good as Jews, and so they were not allowed to eat with a Gentile. If they did eat with a Gentile, even talk with a Gentile, then they would be spiritually uh, uh, defiled, and they would have to go through a process of making an offering uh, for the sin they'd committed. But Peter's a Christian now, right? Even though he's a Jew, he's a Christian. He's, he's walked with Jesus. Uh, he's witnessed the resurrection. Surely he's changed, right? He understands now that, that, that there's no difference between men. Uh, but, but one of the difficulties of being a Christian is that we all carry so much baggage with us when we come to Christ. See, when I walked down the aisle in the little church when I was 16 years old, uh, and only about uh, just a few times that I'd been to church in my life, and, and I walked down that aisle, it, I can almost picture myself having a rope tied to my, around my waist and a whole lot of baggage behind me that I was dragging down the aisle with me. A boy who'd never gone to church at all until he's, he was in the fifth, uh, 15 years old. And then only for uh, all the wrong reasons, never listened to any sermon, didn't know what a sermon was. And, and all that baggage and all that stuff that you have to deal with uh, growing up in a family uh, like I had to grow up in uh, during that time. Just a hardworking um, American family uh, that didn't know a thing about God, had no knowledge uh, about what God was. So you have all that baggage uh, that's in your life socially and, and physically and psychologically and emotionally, uh, all those things, uh, and it's hard to overcome. I mean, we all have built-in prejudices that are there about different things and, and different people. We have bad attitudes. Those bad attitudes affect everything that we are and, and, and whoever we are, and we carry them into our, 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 our Christianity and, and our relationship with other people. Uh, we have old habits that we develop and we start rationalizing why it's all right to, as a Christian, we can still do that and still talk that way, still be that way. And we have guilt uh, and we carry all kind of guilt. And when you see a guilty person, the one thing that's close by is anger. When they start feeling guilt, they either have to repent or they have to confess. And if they don't confess it, they, most of them will turn that, turn that guilt into anger and vent it on whoever or whatever is talking to them or saying anything to them. And then there's always that anger. We found out, guys, most of us especially, that uh, if we get angry enough, we can get our way most of the time. And so we carry that into relationships. We don't get what we want. What do we do? We get mad. We get red-faced, and we, we talk mean, and we say whatever, try to be tough and whatever, because we found out at a certain point on the playground, at least, we got our way. It doesn't work that way in a marriage, though. It doesn't work that way with your children. But that's the baggage that we carried with us, the old ways of doing things, the old ways of, of getting our, our will and, and getting things done, and uh, the ways of looking at the world that need to be changed and and, and, and we, didn't, we don't change. See, let me read just a little bit of the scripture here uh, about the reluctant man, Peter. About noon the following day as they were on their journey, these are the Cornelius' men, and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He's praying. Cornelius is praying in one place. He's praying somewhere else. He became hungry, uh, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He had a vision also. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Got that picture? 
It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Those were unclean foods for any good Jewish person, and they could tell it right. You don't eat a snake. Uh, you don't eat a frog. You don't eat those kind of things. And then a voice told Peter, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. I mean, he called him Lord and then said no, right? Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. All right, Peter has, has that vision now. And this happened three times, and uh, immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Three times he had to face this. Uh, and, and like all of us, Peter's reluctant to change his old ways of thinking. Surely not. I'm not changing, Lord. I don't want to change. I've, been, I've never done anything like that in my whole life. He's been good at following all the rules, and he doesn't want to change them. His religion and his culture had taught him one thing, and now God is trying to change everything he's always believed all of his life. And he has a hard time with that, just like you and I would. He has a hard time with it. When you grow up like I did without any religion, you don't have anything to let go of except your sin. You don't have any of those traditions and cultures and rituals. So when it comes to worshiping, you just, uh, you, you are an open book. And you're ready to receive anything that, that, that God pours into your heart through his word. Uh, what he'd been taught now was in conflict, though, with God's words. And he's resisting the change with all of his might, just like you and I do. Three times, God lowers that sheet, says, take and eat. And he, he says no, and he raises up. Three times he brings it down, and he still says no. He's still reluctant to eat, and, and as far as we know, he never did. He never took anything off of that. He never violated his past and what he thought was the right thing to do. He never did take anything from that and eat, even though he was hungry. So God is trying to show him something. And, and, and Peter doesn't realize it at the time, but soon he's going to understand that the vision about the sheet and the animals is, has nothing to do with food. Has nothing to do with food. God's going to show him that there are no unclean animals, and he's also going to teach him that there are no unclean people. So while he's still trying to understand the vision, God tells him that there are men coming to the house, and I want you to go with them uh, to a place, and, and Peter doesn't know it. But here's the guy, remember, who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Remember Matthew 16? He said, thou, he, he said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Peter, uh, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven, and unto you I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't realize that he is the man who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And God is telling him, I want you to take that key and I want you to unlock the door of faith that will allow the Gentiles, millions and millions of, of Gentiles, to be able to come into the kingdom of God and receive the gift of eternal life. He has the keys. He was the spokesman, spokesperson for the church on the day of Pentecost, and he unlocked the door, and 3,000 people were able to rush in to be saved at the very beginning, the birth of the church. And now he's going to unlock the door that's going to let the Gentiles in. You know who that is? That's you and me. And that's the millions of other people who've come before, because if you were not a Jew, you were called a Gentile. 
And so all of us are Gentiles. And, and he, he was being given the opportunity to be able to unlock the door, to become a world changer, to become a world leader, to open the door of salvation to millions of people like you and me. And he's being offered the opportunity to be the man who will be the catalyst who changes the world forever. Uh, it'll make him an amazing disciple. And he's reluctant to change. He's resistant. He's fighting it. Three times he says no to God. Still calls him Lord. I love you, Lord, but. And he doesn't do it. Those are the two amazing disciples I want you to remind, look at. But just one last thing, and that's the unchanging God in a changing world. I want you to see the unchanging God in our changing world including Gentiles as part of God's chosen people. It was like a spiritual earthquake uh, measuring, measuring a 10 on the biblical Richter scale. I mean, it just shocked everybody and anybody. And there was a big conference in Jerusalem later on about should Gentiles be allowed in. But Paul went off and he became the, the, the one speaking to them uh, and preaching to them. But, but saving Gentiles wasn't new in the Bible. They, they had all, the Gentiles had always been allowed to be saved. I remember uh, uh, Rahab the harlot in Jericho hid the two spies. They were spying out the land for Moses and how she, she hid the two spies. And the result was she went along with them. She was converted to become a Jew. Uh, remember Ruth the Moabite, Ruth and Boaz, and, and how she, uh, she moved into uh, what we know as the promised land. She, but both of them became Jews first. And they went through the ritual. They, made a, they were converted to be a Jew. And they, all, both of those ladies became a part of the lineage of Jesus himself. So they're a part of the family uh, of Jesus. See, the question for Peter in this point uh, was, was not necessarily can they be, be saved, but as he offers the gospel to them, can he offer the gospel to a Gentile? And can he allow the, a person who's a Gentile to become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? Doesn't he have to convert to Judaism and then become a, a Christian? You see, in the very early years, the first few hundred years, uh, Christianity was just looked at as an offspring of, of Judaism and as a part of Judaism. But eventually, as the Gentiles came on, uh, it changed all of that. Uh, that's when the real message of the vision of the sheet became clear to Peter. It says, then, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is. I just got it. I now realize how true it is. I just got it that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That's all that scripture I want to read just for the sake of time. But did you hear what he said? In light of what happened in Charleston recently, we, we, we might use the word prejudice here instead of favoritism. But I, I like the word favoritism here. I think it, it'll communicate this point better uh, than even the word prejudice would. Uh, we talk about Christian America, don't we? As if America is God's favorite nation. And a lot of people believe that. Manifest destiny and all that sort of thing. That, that we, we are God's favorite nation. That doesn't, the Bible doesn't say anything at all about America. Not mentioned in the Bible. If we were his favorite nation, surely he would have mentioned something about us, right? He didn't. We're just God's tool. We're God's instrument. 
uh, to be used as long as we, we follow his, his way. Hitler thought the Aryan race was God's favorite race. As we read our newspapers and watch our TV, we can see there's still some little Hitlers around today, aren't there? Some denominations think they're God's favorite church. And they think they're the only church. And they'll tell you they're the only church. They're, they're God's favorite church, they think. Heterosexuals think they're God's favorite people. But I, I want you to understand this. What does the Bible say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Who does that include? Everybody. Every nation. Every race, every people, every denomination. For God so loved the world. That's a, we're, we're all his favorite people. He loves all of us exactly the same. There's never been a day in your life, your best day, your worst day, where God ever loved you any less than he did the day you were born. God loves everybody, and we have to grasp hold of that. We're not, no, God doesn't love any of us any better than anybody else. But if you look at this, you're also going to see that, that though God loves everyone the same, Peter's words show us that God does have some favorite people, though. But God accepts men from every nation. Here are the ones he accepts who fear him and do what is right. Those are the ones that are God's favorites, and those are the ones that he welcomes in. Those who fear him and those who do what is right. Those who have faith in him and those then who live out that faith by their actions and by their, their deeds. Uh, same thing is said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is a whole duty of God. Fear God, keep his commandments. Same thing. So the people who have faith in God and the people who work good deeds for God are his favorites. That the chosen people of God aren't distinguished by nationality. It's not distinguished by race or denomination or even a culture. It's only by faith that is demonstrated in works that fall under that category of the people that God chooses and makes his favorites. James chapter 2 says the same thing very clearly in verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What good is it if you say that? Can such faith save them? And the implied answer is no, it can't save them. What good is it, all right? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, I'll pray for you, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that to that person? In the same way, that was an illustration of his point. In the same way, faith by itself, absence of works, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. No life, doesn't exist, doesn't have any meaning, doesn't have any purpose in life. It is dead and gone. So while Peter was sharing the gospel message with Cornelius, He's in his home now. He's violated his principles. He's going into the home of a, of a Gentile, which he was not allowed to do. And, and he's brought his, Cornelius is there, and he has his whole family with him. I don't think it's just his children. I think it's his in-laws and, and, and aunts and uncles and, and cousins and all kinds of relationships around. And he even brought in some friends. He's got a large crowd in his house. Something happened that changed Peter, and it changed Cornelius 
and it changed his family, and it changed our world. Look at it again, verse 44 through 47. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. Those are the friends, the Christians, the Jewish Christians that had come along with Peter. They were astonished, and here's why, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Do you see the miracle that God has done now that changed these disciples into amazing disciples? Can, can you see that? When the man who was willing to change calls upon the man who was reluctant to change and he preaches the life-changing gospel, then the unchanging God is able to move in a supernatural way and change the world. It happened back then. It can happen today. It can happen with you. It can happen with your life. It happened in my life. It happened with my family. Trent and my, my other kids and my grandchildren, they have no concept of how I had to grow up. They have no concept of what, what I was exposed to as a child growing up. And that's my goal. that was my goal in life. Once I found out there was a different way of living, I wanted that. I was willing to change anything and everything that I had to in order to make sure that my children and my grandchildren didn't have to grow up and experience the same things that I did growing up. I was willing to change. That's what God's willing to do with anyone. The Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles in the same way they'd come upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so Cornelius and his family heard the gospel. They believed the gospel, and they were baptized in the church, and all of their lives were changed that day. His whole family was changed that day. I wish we had a book by, written by Cornelius that would tell us what difference he could make in the Roman Empire. But I'll guarantee you, a man like that, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that this man had a tremendous influence on hundreds, if not thousands, of other people because of the witness of, and willingness to change on that particular day. All of us are Gentiles who now can go through the door of salvation. Let me end the message this way. I, I want to try to bring you up to date on some things and make you realize some things if you don't know. We hear a lot about the low-information voter. We've got some low-information Christians too. And, and I, we need to wake up, and we need to, to be aware of what's going on in our, our world. And I want to try to help you do that as I try to make some sense out of this message. See, our world is in chaos. You don't think so? Well, your world isn't, but the rest of the world around you is, and it's getting closer. It's like a forest fire. A forest fire is burning, and you don't think it's any, you can't even smell the smoke yet. You just heard the news that there's a forest fire somewhere, and you don't have any sense that it's coming closer and closer and closer every day. Our world's in chaos. The Middle East is a time bomb waiting to explode. And you can only imagine what happens if the, the greatest supporter of terrorism in the world, Iran, gets a nuclear weapon and passes it on to someone like the ISIS people and how they might be able to plant it at Times Square in New York City and what that would do to the greatest city perhaps in America and the, and the world. 
It can happen. And, and it's a time bomb waiting, waiting to explode. Russia is trying to rebuild the Soviet Union and create another Cold War. Our nation has an $18 trillion debt. Well, you don't think you've got a, maybe a $100,000 debt on your house and you think that's terrible. $18 trillion. Can you spell Greece? The nation of Greece. What they're going through now is a result of spending more than they have. And we're in that process. And in the next 10 years, they say, that we're going to reach the same point where Greece is, Greece is and we're not going to be able to pay our debts. You can only tax so much. Our economy is still sputtering. Our politicians are still offering new ways to, to give handouts to potential voters. An American man walks into a church prayer meeting and randomly shoots nine innocent Christians simply because the pigment of their skin isn't like his. In the midst of all of that, over 4,000 churches in America close every year. 4,000 churches closing every year in America. Eight years ago, 78% of the people in America said that they, they would identify themselves as Christians. Eight years later now, uh, 70%, only 70% of the people in America say they identify themselves as Christians. 8% of 300 million people plus is over 24 million people, Christians, and that once identified themselves in America, no longer do that. Half of our children are being raised in one-parent homes. The American family is under attack. Drinking alcohol has become the favorite activity for many high school students. Drugs are destroying the minds of some of our best young people. Pornography is stealing the power out of too many Christian men in church today. Three men and two women in black robes have decided that God's definition of marriage is no longer the law of the land. The forest fire is burning, folks. Getting closer and closer and closer. Our culture is in chaos. And like Cornelius, our world is crying out for kingdom men and kingdom women to stand up and do something about it. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. But they listen to us and they read the Bible a little bit and they hear about what we talk about. And they want to say, I wish somebody would stand up. I wish somebody would do something to be able to stop this chaos and bring some peace into our world. They're looking to the church, God's church. And many churches have responded to the chaos by lowering their standards. But we can't get people in if we maintain the biblical standards. So we'll say, we'll just lower this standard down. And we'll say what used to be sin is no longer sin. And that way we'll still get people to come to our church. Because that's the goal, right? Get more people in church. Compromising God's word. They're hiding behind our stained glass windows, pretending like they can't do anything about the changes that are going on on the outside. There are too many Christians, especially the younger generation today, they're, they're caving into culture and they're accepting the cultural changes and changing the standards of, of the Bible to be able to fit into the secular society instead of following the unchanging God and his biblical standards. That only leads to more destruction and more chaos. Peter and Cornelius teach us that, that we're never going to change the world until we allow God to change us. Even us as Christians, 
in our affluence, in our peace, in our, in our, our so-called peace, we just keep going on doing the same things and expecting someone else to stand up. When are we going to stand up? When are you going to stand up? When am I going to stand up and start being the voice of God and, and start challenging what's going on in our society? We don't have to be politically correct. We just need to be biblically correct. And when we're biblically correct in a politically correct world, we're going to be persecuted as a church. We're being persecuted now. And it's going to continue on. You've already started hearing talk about taking away the tax-exempt status of churches that don't comply with whatever rules they make in our culture. The First Amendment that guarantees political freedom of religion is already under attack. And it's going to get even worse. God has called us to be, be leaders in our homes, in our churches, our workplace, and our culture, and, and most of all in our private lives. And today I believe God is searching for people. He's searching for individuals who will do what Ezekiel said, make up the hedge and stand in the gap for the Lord. Be the kind of Christian person. Don't worry so much about being nice as being faithful. And if you're faithful in a politically correct world, you're going to face persecution. And, and you, you deal with the persecution by simply being more faithful. That's the way the amazing disciples did it. Uh, we're never going to bring peace out of this chaos without men and women who are willing to stand in the gap, face the chaos, speak up, be the leaders that God has called us to be in all of those places. There's a man who did that back in the 1930s. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during a time of great chaos in the world. Uh, it, he was imprisoned by Hitler and put into a, a prison camp with other pastors and other people who stood up against him. And he was eventually executed as the Allied forces were coming to that prison. The, the German soldiers had the order to kill every prisoner there, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those who lost his life. But while he was there and before that, he wrote a different, different books, and you can still read some of them about, about discipline and, and uh, the cross that you have to carry. Here's one thing that he wrote uh, 70 years ago that sounds like it was written to me to the church today and written to you today, I hope, also. And I quote, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Today is a time for change. Today, while we still have hope, while we still have the opportunity, it's time for change. But in order for time to change, times to change, it takes God-fearing men and women who put their faith into action and do and deeds and do what it is that they're supposed to do. Stand up and be like Jesus. That'll be revolutionary in our world. That, that'll, you, you'll be called a rebel. You'll be called a lot of bad names. But that's what God expects from all of us. We need amazing disciples to stand up for the truth of God today. And it begins with one man. It begins with one woman. It begins with one young person. That's all it takes. One person somewhere, somehow, needs to stand up and hopefully be the leader that will get others to stand up and do the job. It needs to begin one man or woman at a time 
It needs to begin today. Will you be that man? Will you be that man in your family, in your church, in your home, in your community? Will you be that woman in your church, in your community? Stand up. Let God change in any ways that he needs to. And be that man that can make a difference in the world. I want to open up the, the prayer altar today. And I'm going to pray and then the, our group's going to come out. and They're going to sing the last song before we're dismissed. And if you just feel led to come and pray for your country, pray for your church, pray for your, your family, and most of all, pray for yourself, that God will give you the courage to be the man, the, the woman, the Christian, the church member, the citizen that God needs you to be in order to change this world from the direction where it's headed. I'm going to pray, and I invite you to come even as I pray and while they sing. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word. And I pray that all ears here were able to hear it and understand it in the way that it was intended. I pray you'll speak to our hearts and you'll minister to us today. I pray as we come and as we pray together, as we reach out together, that we will lift up our hearts to you and that you will begin a change in each of us, Lord, a change in each of us that will make such a difference in this church that it will become a revival that will sweep across this entire state. I pray for this church and this city to become the type of city that you will be able to use, Lord, to bring about that revival that is so badly needed. Lord, I pray that you will begin a movement today. Let it begin. It has to begin somewhere. It has to begin with someone. May it begin, begin here today and in me. May that be our prayer in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.